Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople, today is my great pleasure to have David Cicchelli on the podcast with us. Welcome, David. Hey, Jeremy. Glad to be here. Thanks. David is a revenue growth advisor at the Alexander Group. He's actually been there for 35 years. The reason I invited David onto the podcast was because we recently did a survey of a bunch of $100 million plus CROs, chief revenue officers, and we asked them in a free form question, what's the number one issue on your mind right now? And almost all of them said sales compensation. So that is going to be our main topic for the day. Usually we talk about favorite books, but actually David's book is one of my favorites. So I'm going to reverse the script here of what we usually do. He's written a number of books, but Compensating the Sales Force is, you'll find the Amazon bestseller on sales compensation and for very good reason. I read the second edition back in 2017, and it's now on a third edition. And just in case, if you want to read it in Russian or Chinese, (laughs) you can also do that. But that book is absolutely my go-to anytime I need to redesign restructure, modify, answer questions on sales compensation. I crack open my detailed notes on the book. So David, thank you so much for contributing that book to the world. Uh, Thanks for the shout out. I mean, I guess I should have asked the CROs this question directly, but I'll, I'll ask it to you to hypothesize, which is why now is sales compensation the number one topic on the minds of CROs of $100 million plus companies? That's an interesting question. Probably has multiple dimensions of answers, and we can explore a couple of them right now. But a CRO is constantly under the gun to increase productivity. So that's their sort of number one objective is increase sales volume, increase profitability, increase new customers. And uh, there's a lot of tools available to sales executives, you know, including uh, hiring the right people and training and sales enablement and CRM. But there's nothing like the sales compensation program to get the attention of the sales force. And so making sure that things align correctly and driving the right type of performance is one of the you know, premier objectives of a sales leader. And if it's not working correctly, it is a high degree of frustration. It frustrates sales leadership. It certainly frustrates the salespeople too. How important is sales compensation, variable sales compensation as a lever for driving sales performance? And to set that up a little bit more, the reason I ask that is every so often I run across someone, in fact, there was a LinkedIn thread earlier this week where someone said, should we get rid of sales compensation commissions and variable compensation and just move to fixed pay for salespeople? Well, actually, (laughs) that's an interesting theme that has, you know, in my career, I've seen it arrive multiple times in books and sometimes in somebody speculating. And and it's always a good question. You know, why are we doing this? Most sales executives find that it works. The question is, how do you make it work well? And the idea that you wouldn't use it may be appropriate in some instances. I remember recently some of the folks in the uh, car sales sector said, you know, maybe we don't really need sales incentives and pushing cars at people. Maybe what we need is just good customer service. So I think it's always a great question to ask for any type of sales job is to say, you know, what is this job's primary role? Is it really information sharing? Is it really a customer service role? And maybe sales incentives is is really not the right solution. Most sales leaders would tell you, "I, I have a lot of things available to me, But one of the things I got to make sure I get right, of course, is the sales compensation program that seems to produce the right types of results. I'm not super knowledgeable about compensation structures in the retail space, and we do have some retail listeners. Are there significant differences between retail sales compensation and business to business sales compensation? On the surface, you would look at the plans and say, my goodness, they are quite different. Uh, Frequently, we will have in a retail sector, we'll have a 
a percentage of the revenue dollars. And frequently, if it's a department store, there'll be different commission rates. For example, the jewelry department might have one commission rate and the women's clothing and men's clothing might have a separate commission rate or maybe no commission at all. And they really just want the uh, salespeople to provide customer service and help people locate product and move them to the cashier. So it's always the question. And it's a question you would ask business to business. And the question you would ask for retail too is what degree of persuasion is there? Remember what sales compensation is reserved for. It's paying for successful persuasion. So if the job is actually configured as a helper, customer service job, uh, help you find the product, sales incentives really don't make a lot of sense. However, if your salespeople are expected to not only sell and plus add to it, and I recall going into a very well-known department store, and, and the joke is I went in to buy a belt and the person said to me, would you like a suit to go with that? <laughs> and so the point being is, is there is an incentive. You can do what's called build the ticket. And that is if a person comes in to buy something, well, how many additional things did you actually sell them? In fact, you'll feel that experience at uh, restaurant chains when you sit down and they'll say, let me start you with a drink. Uh, and then uh, how about an appetizer? And then let's talk about the main course. And excellent customer service, also very well done in terms of building the ticket. And of course, the objective of that server is in fact to get you. Now, I know you're filled, but how about one big slice of chocolate cake and four forks. Anytime you're asking somebody to persuade somebody to do something that favors you financially, that usually puts it into some type of persuasion job. And therefore, the, most of them are called sales jobs. And then we do provide some type of incentive for that. Now, it's not a birthright. You know, you can literally manage employees without using it. This is what's important. You should be accomplishing these things. However, we got to make sure that it doesn't create any unethical behavior or weird service treatments or anything like that. That's where some of the problems run into sales compensation. In the B2B world, it's traditional for sales managers to have a roll-up of the compensation of the individual sales executives and not to have their own commission separate from their teams in addition to their teams. In the retail world where you often do have managers, quote unquote, on the floor, I'm wondering if managers sometimes have their own sales targets. They do, but you've got to make sure there's not competition on the floor for a customer. So a lot of uh, retail floors will have what's called a rotating assignment. In fact, if you walk into a furniture store that has salespeople, floor salespeople, you'll see them actually, they're literally stacked up. You can actually look at them and they're positioned for the next customer that will come in. So you need to have a fair attribution, but we do not want our sales managers competing. But there is a job known as a branch manager in the B2B world, and the branch manager has direct reports and their own accounts. And we always need to have some form of balance between them selling their own accounts and also helping their own salespeople. And it's a what's called a hybrid job. And hybrid jobs are always sort of difficult to balance out those competing interests. I was once worked at a place where the CEO was adamant that we would never have spiffs, that he wanted as simple a sales compensation structure as possible. It was a Fortune 1000 company. So there were all these competing interests, right, about product managers who were quite powerful trying to introduce spiffs. And he just said, that's it, no more. The structure was basically, we had recurring and non-recurring revenue products. On the recurring revenue products, that was what the main comp plan was on. And you got whatever, let's call it 10% commission on those products. And then there was a non-recurring world, which was consulting services. You got 5% on that. And basically that was that. There was no other complications in the model. What do you think about those ultra simple models? What are your philosophies on spiffs? 
first of all, we do agree that we do want to keep our sales compensation program as simple as possible, three measures or less, and that they're production measures, they're output measures, and not input measures. We're not measuring administrative compliance. We're not measuring pipeline speed. All of those are supervisory tools that we use to help improve sales performance. But generally, we want to reserve the money for actual revenue production of some form. It might be revenue. It might be profitability. It might be new accounts. It might be cross-sell. It might be whatever the topics are. Now, the issue about SPIFs, and it's very amusing. I was sort of uh, smiling as you told the story. There's a famous behavior that a company at a certain point when things start to slow down will start getting product managers producing lots and lots of different products. And guess what? They show up with spiffs. And so they become narcotic in nature. The more you use them, the more you have to use them. And pretty soon you have your sales force uh, becoming the worst expression I've ever heard, coin operated, waiting for some type of contest. They actually start to throttle their behavior in anticipation of the contest. And then an executive will stand up and say, no more spiffs. And it sounds like that happened at your company. I mean, at the executive level, that executive is also thinking about basically, is this sales commission a fixed cost for the organization or is it a variable cost? And when people get addicted to it and it's an entitlement and the sales leadership come and ask for the spiff to be pre-budgeted at a certain level, it becomes more fixed cost. How should people, you know, if people who are in executive leadership positions think about where that line is drawn between whether or not sales is fixed versus variable cost? Let me answer that first of all with SPIS, but then let me talk about sales compensation in general. Okay, so some very shorthand rules about SPIS. First of all, don't have too many of them. Only use SPIS for doing something new for the first time. The total budget on an annual basis should be between 3.5 to 5% of the total target compensation. Don't run multiple SPIFs at the same time and don't have them predictable every year, okay? And don't allow anybody to access the sales department, whether they're vendors or product managers, without it going through some type of calendar process by the sales organization. So that's some of the contracts about SPIFs. And the final point is, are SPIFs valuable? Yes, they are in moderation for doing things new for the first time. Okay, now let's go back to your other question. That was the question about, wait a minute, what about sales compensation? Is that a variable cost to the company? If you uh, frequently are on one side of the fence, like you're over in finance, you'll say, absolutely. Why do you think we have it? It's, you know, it's, uh, the more they sell, the more they get paid. The less they sell, the less they get paid. Well, actually, there's a little bit more of an implication about this topic. And that is, if you separate sellers into two buckets, one is known as sales representatives. They're representing the company's product and services. And producers who are actually representing themselves like real estate agents and currency traders and stockbrokers, they basically have a book of business that they take with them wherever they go and they get a percentage of everything they sell. We don't have any target comp. We don't worry about whether they make a little money or a lot of money. We're splitting it with them, okay? And that's known as a producer incentive program. The cost to the company is fully variable. It's variable to the person. If they don't sell, they don't get paid. And it's variable to the company. If they don't produce any revenue, we don't split it with them. Okay. Now, let's go to the sales representative. These are people that you've purchased. They're labor purchased people. There's a price point for them, 100000 So, in fact, for a sales department, the cost of labor is not variable. So, at the end of the year, if the target pays 100000 and then there's, uh, you know, 10 people... That's what the average pay should be. It should be 100000 at the end of the year. But David, we grew by 20%. Well, you should have set your quotas harder by 20%. 
or we shrunk by 10%. Well, you should have lowered your quotas by 10%. So what we're looking for is 55 to 65% of the people achieving or exceeding quota. So the cost to the company is not variable. It is highly variable to the person. So for those who have an interest in the economics of it, it's what's really happening is that the low performers are paying the high performers. The target incentive amount that we collected off of their total target comp actually is being redistributed with the better performers earning more money and the lower performers earning less money. So where does the funding come from sales compensation for sales representative? It actually comes from the sales representative themselves. Not a great communications uh, platform to describe to the sales force. And yeah, some years you're going to overpay a little bit and some years you're going to underpay a little bit too. In fact, for those who are interested in the accounting aspect of it, generally a sales compensation program will pay about 102 to 104% of its target incentive amount for 100% to goal. So it just happens to have some additional play in it. And it usually generally overpays by about 2%. Okay. Got it. Yeah. You just mentioned, by the way, that you want 55 to 65% of people achieving quota. That's been one of the topics over the past couple of years of, you know, sometimes 50% or lower. Uh, that number also surprised me because I'm so used to designs where you're trying to get basically two thirds, right? 60, you know, 66, 67% achieving that or higher. As you've been doing this for 35 years, has that target of 55 to 65% shifted? Because it sounds lower than what I've heard in the past. No, it's the objective has always been about two thirds, but most companies, when they state it as a policy statement, will say 55 to 65%. I favor the 65%. It's closer to the two thirds number. But, you know, uh, Jeremy, two interesting points. One is, what is the actual quota performance of companies? Now, that's a data that I've been collecting since uh, 2003. And what, even though the objective is 55 to 65%, the actual outcome is closer to 50. 49, 51, 48, 52. So if you actually then, you know, say, what, what percentage of our people achieve quota? It's more a 50-50 split. It does not get as close to that 55 to 65 that we look for. Remember, these are median numbers that we're talking about here. Now, just real quickly, there's some interesting industries that are struggling with quota performance. Like, for example, the recurring revenue SaaS organizations. They are struggling to get their salespeople. First of all, they usually have bimodal distribution. A few people are doing really well and a whole bunch of people are doing bad. And they're having, you know, quota accomplishments, 30% of the salespeople, 40% of the salespeople. So right away, you're underpaying at market rates. So that's going to create some type of disconnect with your sales force. And they're going to say, what's the deal? And remember what causes turnover, loss of hope. So if people don't have a chance of hitting their goal and we've set the goals too high or we haven't segmented correctly or we haven't given them the right tools, eventually the people are going to say, you know what, We're, I'm not making any money here. I have a theory which I'd love for you to confirm or deny in the SaaS world, which is I've observed this like ever increasing quota that's being set for people. It's coming from something else, which is the reps come in demanding a higher OTC, or as, as Alexander Group calls it, I think TTC, total target compensation. The reps come in demanding a, a higher total target compensation. And in order to justify that, companies have to set a higher quota, and then 30%, as you described, end up hitting it. For me, it feels like there is this vicious cycle of demanding higher TTC, causing higher and completely unattainable quotas. Is that theory It's valid? That theory is valid. And what is the cause of that is an incorrectly designed coverage model. So the ILEAR model, identify land, adopt, expand, renew, okay, 
is the uh, sort of contact strategy used in the SaaS world. And if you use a direct salesperson to do all those things, the job breaks down and can't function correctly. So a lot of issues in sales compensation design can find their roots in, is the job designed correctly? And so what we really see the most successful SaaS organizations break those roles up. So we have a bunch of people that are locating freemium-based customers for us, getting them into the lead, qualified lead pipeline. Then we have somebody who's working on uh, nurturing them and getting them buying something small. And then we might even have another group that's actually selling the enterprise solution. And then we have another group doing customer success. In other words, are they using the product? So a classic salesperson model starts to fray at the edges. It can't do all those dissimilar tasks. So, and of course, the thing that's going to break down first is going to be the compensation program. It's not going to pay enough. People are going to hit quotas. I would say out of eight out of our 10 sales comp projects that we're asked to do have underlying job design errors, hybrid jobs, corrupted jobs, bandwidth exceeded jobs, and they need those jobs need to be brought back to the barn and recut. And the question is, what percentage of companies over-assign quota as compared to the fiscal guidance they give to the street? I know the number, okay? I've actually surveyed that question multiple times over the last 15 years. And so the number is very consistent. What percentage of companies over-assign their quota to their sales force? So 50%, 50% of the companies over-assign. 42% match the annual number, and that leaves 8% like under-assigning, okay? And then you might say, well, why the hell would they do that? Because they have house accounts and unpredictable mega orders, so they tend to under-assign it. But let's go back to those that over assign I used to say, that, well, that was a bad thing to do, but apparently oh, half the companies do it. Here, here's the next question. How much over-assignment is there? And I thought the number was going to be super high. The median is only 5%. 5% over assignment. Is there a red line not to cross? Like you shouldn't over assign more than 10 or 15 or 20? I mean, when you're burying your sales department and less than 50% of your people reaching quota, you're going into the danger zone. As you've been doing this for a while, I'm curious, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you've seen people make in, in designing sales comp plans? We talked about a few of them as too many metrics and excessive over allocation and so on. But what are some of the other big mistakes people make? I would say, number one, commit to an annual review process. In other words, sometimes it's just wait for the last minute to do it. Have a game plan that you're going to take a look at the current plans, meet with senior leaders, make sure we have alignment, examine the jobs, make sure they're still functioning correctly, get the operations and communications in place, roll the plan out right after the start of the fiscal year. So it should be done on an annual basis. Even if you don't think you're going to have major changes, just the process of looking at your pay programs is super important. So that would be sort of the number one. And then the second thing is, is that most sales compensation errors, you know, the things not functioning at all, usually can be solved by fixing the job designs and getting the jobs better aligned with the buyer populations. And again, in flat markets, you really have to start to break the customer base down into segments that you can, you know, specialize your sellers. And I'm not just talking about a pyramid of big, middle, and small. I'm talking about maybe industry segments or propensity to purchase segments. And so segmentation becomes the eventual skill set of a revenue leader. You know, I would say those two things is the most important is an annual plan and constantly be asking the question, do we have the jobs lined up correctly? And if you do a little bit of changes, it's like California and earthquakes. 
It's okay to have little earthquakes. Southern California gets 12,000 earthquakes a year, 12,000. Now, how many do we feel? One every five years, every four years. So a sales department needs to be constantly realigning itself. It's kind of like, uh, you know, like a tugboat thing. It's got to be pushed and shaped so that we're going after the segments with the right products, with the right messages. And the sales department gets it. They know that. They know that they need to be aligned where where there's risk and uncertainty is where sales reps belong. And so whenever the product is, becomes generic and be can ordered, you know, online, we really don't need salespeople anymore. You know, we need them to go after the uncertain buyer. We need them to go after the high risk purchase situations. We need them to introduce new products and new technologies that customers aren't accustomed to buying. All right. One last one for you, which is what's the most important question around sales compensation that I failed to ask you today? So does sales compensation work? And the answer is, yes, it does. It's a very powerful device, but it is, it's delicate. It requires some careful thought and planning and investment of time to get it right. Well, David, it was such a delight to learn from you today. I feel as though you clarified so many of the questions that I've had over the years, and I probably could just crack the pages of compensating the sales force, which I do encourage listeners to go out and study highlight, underline, and so on. If people want to learn more about you, your books, Alexander Group, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, they can just come into our website, www.alexandergroup.com. We're a full revenue growth consulting firm. I'm the specialist in sales compensation. So we have folks that redesign sales organizations, help PE firms to get their acquired companies going, mergers and acquisitions, whatever it takes to build and structure and empower a sales department, we're there to help. Thank you for that and a pleasure to chat with you today. Okay, thanks a lot, Jeremy. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. Paige McCauley is our producer. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey, Salespeople podcast.